0: So, uh, my wife, Jill, is at home taking care of Gabriel today. Gabriel decided to start coughing up his lungs, which was not a pleasant sound. And uh, Lucy, our third child, had had pneumonia twice within her first year, and so we tend to play these things pretty safe. So she's not here to hear all this nice stuff I'm going to say about her, because uh, in case you missed it this past week, uh, it was Jill and I's 14th wedding anniversary on Wednesday. We've been married for 14 years. We are products of the last millennium. And uh, my parents were there that day. It was a great day. It was a beautiful August 7th, and the weather was very much like today kind of bright, and beautiful, not a cloud in the sky, nothing heavy on our hearts. It was just a beautiful, beautiful day in lots of ways. My, my parents were there, and Jill's parents, and six of our grandparents who were still living, and three of them have since passed away. Uh, Our six siblings were there as well. I have three siblings, and Jill has three sisters. And we thought the whole family was there, but it turns out there was more family that came. You know, uh, my, my six siblings are now all married, but none of them even knew their spouses then. And so they're all married. And between the seven brothers, sisters, and spouses, there are 12 kids who weren't there that day, and three more to come by January. So it was a wonderful day, but Things have gotten even better since then, and uh, Susie, you were there, and you were, well, we won't say how old you were, but you were young. You were really, wow, you were so tiny, so cute. Anyway, Susie's Jill's cousin. Sorry, Susie, it's probably, Jill doesn't like that kind of embarrassment. You probably don't either, but it was nice to have you there then. Um, The story of my life with Jill, I think, is pretty amazing, um, and I could talk about it for a long time, but it's perfectly ordinary, really. We haven't become famous or rich We haven't battled unusual adversity. Some of you have battled unusual adversity in your lives, and we haven't. Our lives have been, in a sense, a boring blessing. Not a whole lot of adversity to face. Just the same, even though it's been sort of boring and wonderful, uh, I can't look back on August 7th, 1999 and see anything but a pivot point in my life. On that day, I committed my life and myself to a woman that I thought I knew, and I actually, of course, had no idea who she was, and she committed her life to me having no idea actually who I was. But we have generally been a pretty good team for each other. Each one, if you know Jill, she's generally strong where I'm weak, and I'm generally strong where she's weak, and both of us are mostly capable and willing of doing the grunt work that you have to do to keep a marriage going. I say mostly because... Like all married couples, we argue and, you know, carry on sometimes. But uh, we've also, frankly, part of our life together has been taking seriously the command to be fruitful and multiply. So if you had told me 14 years and four days ago that we would be back in Houghton, doing what we're doing with four little brown-eyed kids, I would not have believed you uh, because it's just been that kind of wonderful. Now, with all that wonderful stuff in mind, I want to say something odd and perhaps off-putting, but I think it's biblical, so I'll say it. Marriage is not for everyone. In the New Testament, Paul often seems to regard marriage as a sort of necessary evil for some people, a concession to our bodily weakness, and that I'm sure is in part because he seemed to expect the world's end to come very soon, but it also is in part because he believed in the power of a life completely consecrated to God. Body, soul, spirit, all of it to God. Uh, his famous remark in 1 Corinthians comes to mind, 1 Corinthians 7, that those who can't practice self-control should marry because it's better to marry than to burn. Well, it's sort of a low bar, really, but <laughs> it's not exactly a ringing endorsement of marriage. Uh, I think we all affirm this idea that marriage is not for everybody. We would all say that with our lips. We would all assent to that with our minds. When push comes to shove, though, I think in our hearts, we tend to think that marriage is indeed for everyone. For those of us who are married, right, it's sort of uh, the center of our existence. We, we struggle to remember kind of who we were before that. For those of us who are married, it's kind of a a just part and parcel of who we are. Those of us who are single have usually had to struggle in some way with what it means to be single. Is this a lifelong calling for me? I don't know. I don't always feel like I fit in. Who am I really if I'm not married? Now, those of you who know me well know that I'm quite frank and confessional in the pulpit. And so I'll say that. From my perspective, those of us that are married don't always know what to do with our single friends. And in fact, we find ourselves saying and doing just the wrong thing often. That isn't largely because most of us who are married are mean. At least we try not to be. But it's mostly just because, as I say, we can't imagine our lives without this defining relationship at the center. And I imagine from a single person's perspective, it's hard to imagine having that relationship at the center of your life. And so we find it hard to talk to each other in a meaningful way. I think it's that difficulty is made even more pronounced because in our culture, we tend to have great expectations for what our marriages will be. Our culture tends to talk about our spouses as people who completely meet our needs for intimacy, someone who completes us. Someone who can meet all of my needs for emotional intimacy, spiritual intimacy, physical intimacy. And we expect our spouses to be completely reliable sources of complete love for us. And because of this, those of us that are married tend to look at that relationship as being the very center of our lives. But I can't stress enough how that idea didn't really come to us from the Bible. That idea came to us, uh, I think, much more from Hollywood than from Scripture. And, and Hollywood tells that story really, really well and really, really often. So we've kind of internalized it and we think of it uh, as reality when, in fact, it's not. In fact, if I can put it bluntly, I think it's a lie. I think it's not true. And, and lies have consequences, and this particular lie has consequences which just litter our cultural landscape and hurt lots and lots of people. One consequence of this lie, I think, is that people have come to expect too much from their marriages, right? Uh, people, it's like when you send the youth group off to this awesome national retreat where the most amazing band is and the most amazing speakers are, and they come back and they're like, well, church is boring compared to that, right? And so when we have this picture of what marriage should be, we take a look at our real marriages and we say, really? Really? This is who I married? Well, he's getting bald. She's getting fat. He's grown distant. She won't shut up about her needs. He's ungrateful. She doesn't appreciate me. Our kids add a whole other layer of difficulties. And and they compare their real lives to the expectations they have for marriage. And they feel like failures. And so marriages are harmed by this lie. Because spouses, in the end, turn out to be human and not God. And, of course, this lie, I think, has other consequences as well, right? There's a college here in our town, in case you haven't noticed, and this college is the center of many of our lives in many ways, and this college, in case you hadn't noticed, has many more young women that attend than young men. And so, even if you supposed that everybody who came to Houghton found a match every man, that is, there would still be a couple hundred women who left Houghton without finding the person they're going to spend their lives with. And of course, many men and women leave Houghton for many reasons without finding their spouse. But but any theology of marriage that tells young people that marriage is the only way, the primary way, to get all your needs for love met, to get all your needs for intimacy met. When we tell young folks that in a culture, in a context where we know they can't all get married... Well, that's not nice, <laughs> and it's not true. Right? In the evangelical subculture in which we live, it's not just Houghton, there tend to be many more young women at this stage in history serious about their faith than young men. It implies to young women that the gateway to happiness is finding and catching a man. And as a found and caught man, my spouse would tell you that's not true. <laughs> that's not the only gateway to happiness. So that's a problem, too, with this idea that this is what marriage does. And, and there are other consequences to this as well. Most of you know, uh, maybe you don't, I don't know, but most of you know that same-sex marriage, same-sex relationships, that's a research interest of mine. And, and I meet Christian young people who experience sexual attraction for someone of the same gender, and they didn't consciously choose it. And one of the things they struggle most with is loneliness. They want to be faithful. They want to follow the call of Jesus when it's difficult. But they've lived in a culture that says, if you want to be fully human, you get married. And so we have this phenomenon in our culture where young uh, Christians with same sex attraction will look at traditional Christians and say, You want to condemn me to a life of loneliness, you want to condemn me to a life without intimacy. That's, I mean, I'm traditional on these issues, and that's not what I want to do. I don't want to condemn anyone to anything. But part of the reason people feel that way is because they've intuited the message that the culture has given them and that the church sometimes has given them, that marriage is the way to emotional wholeness. That marriage is the only way to live a happy, fulfilled life with appropriate intimacy with other people. So there are all kinds of consequences when we believe this lie that marriage and family is the only way to receive love, to receive intimacy, and to find meaning. We have to do better. We have to do better. But how? How? Well, that's a big question and it would take a long time to talk about, but I want to start by pointing us at the Bible, I want to point us at the second half of the uh, second chapter of the book of Ephesians that Goody's read for us this morning. And in this section, Paul is speaking to a church that is divided by religious heritage, Jews and Gentiles. And as any student of the New Testament knows, many uh, of the, much of the content of the epistles, much of the early days of the church, was taken up with this question of debating how Gentiles could be fully included in the faith. How can they be fully accepted into the fold if they haven't started off with all the presuppositions that the Jews did? In short, how Jewish do you have to be to be a Christian? And Paul starts this part of it by reminding the Gentiles of their spiritually empty state before Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Without Christ, he says, you Gentiles were distant from God, you were distant from his people, and he uses... Very relational language and says that without Christ, you were strangers. You were aliens. But since Christ has come, since Christ has died, since Christ has risen, says Paul, you who were now or once were far off have now been brought near and Christ himself has been our peace. He has made it possible for us to have intimacy with the Father and with each other. He has made the Jews and the Gentiles one and has destroyed, obliterated the hostility between the two. That hostility that once kept you from genuine relationship with each other. And ultimately, here's the kicker, the fact that you now have genuine relationship with each other is part and parcel of the way that God is making it possible for you to have genuine relationship with him. So Jesus comes and he he proclaims peace to you who were far, peace to you who were near, peace to you, peace to me, peace to everybody. I love the image of Jesus here, just sort of sprinkling peace wherever he goes. Peace to all, all for the sake of building us together into a household, into a family of God. With Jesus occupying, the prime position as cornerstone, with the apostles and the prophets providing the foundation. Now this is an amazing passage for all kinds of reasons, but I think maybe the most amazing is the way that it says our human relationships are essential to this. I've used the word amazing twice in the last 20 seconds, but I'll use it again. It says our human relationships are essential, central to this amazing task, making a home for God in the world. Now, I I, I know that you can push metaphors too far, but consider this for a second. We together are a house for God. And so only as our relationship with each other is strong can we effectively show the love and light of God to a dark and lonely world. For, For a long time, we evangelicals have tended to talk about the importance of inviting Jesus into your heart. And that gives us the image so that when we all gather together, there's Jesus in your heart, in your heart, in your heart. And he's in about 120 different hearts here this morning. And this image doesn't say that image is wrong, but it complements it by saying, no, no, no. Jesus is here with us together. He's living amidst us. He's living in the context of our relationships. If this is true, reconciliation is at the very heart of the gospel. If we're going to build a house for God, we only do so together. If we're to be a family of God, we're only a family, meaningfully, if we're together. Now, this is good news. This is good news for a society like ours, which is at once fascinated by the traditional family and repulsed by the traditional family. It's very good news for those who are unmarried. For whatever reason, because it says that meaning, purpose, intimacy in life is not accessed through the traditional family alone. In fact, not even primarily. It is accessed through becoming part of the household of God, which is open to all people. Now, you've heard me talk in glowing terms about my wife. I love her dearly. I wasn't lying when I said those wonderful things about her at the beginning marriage traditional marriage traditional family having a bunch of kids has been one of the ways that God has shaped me, molded me, grown me. There's no question that I'm a different person than I was on August 7th, 1999, and one of the main reasons is that I made a commitment to to someone and that has changed me profoundly and I'm thankful. But this passage lets go of the need that I have to say that's how you have to do it too. So it's good news for the unmarried. Frankly, it's also very good news for those of us who are married but occasionally disappoint our spouses. That's everyone who's married, actually, right? Because it allows us to not carry that crushing burden of guilt around for failing to be Jesus all the time to our spouses. Yes, I would like to be as Christ to my spouse, but I let her down. That's part of the drill. (laughs) That's part of being human. It's also very good news for those of you who are married but sometimes disappointed in your spouses. It means you don't have to worry every second that your marriage isn't all that it could be because your spouse is not re- responsible for meeting all of your needs And it's also just very good news for the world in general. A world where we need reconciliation, where nations need to reconcile, where peoples need to reconcile, where churches need to reconcile with each other, and where finally we need to reconcile with ourselves. The gospel, if this is true, the gospel is about God taking people who look wildly different from each other and building them into a house so that he can be made manifest in the world through their love for each other and through our new life together. Now, that's good news, but it's news that's very hard to accept. Practically, it's hard to accept. Because it it calls us out of ourselves, and it calls us to reconsider our marriages. It calls us to reconsider, perhaps, some of the things we're disappointed with in our marriages. And it calls us to reconsider our churches. There are a couple things I want to highlight that I think this passage really puts the onus on us to do, a couple demands that it lifts for us. Um, I don't want you to think I'm perfect at these demands, but I think this is where this passage pushes us, and so I want to highlight it for you. One is pretty short, but I think it's important to say. I think this passage demands that we take genuine Christian unity seriously. As evangelicals, we have traditionally cared more about truth than unity. And caring about the truth is a very healthy thing. Uh, I I was raised a Baptist. Uh, I'm in process now of fully becoming Wesleyan, fully saved, fully sanctified, but I was raised a Baptist. And uh, Baptists have this reputation for being more concerned about truth than unity. I'm sure that you've all heard the joke about the Baptist who was uh, marooned on an island and after some years of being there by himself, a ship finally came to rescue him and they saw three little huts And the fellow asked him, well, what's that one hut? And he said, well, that's my house. And he said, well, what's that hut over there with a cross on it? He said, well, that's my church. And he said, well, then what's that other hut with a cross on it? He's like, that's the church that I used to go to, right? (laughs) So Baptists have this reputation for being more concerned with truth than unity. When someone offends us, offends our sense of what's right and wrong, we say, you know what? I'm not going to compromise. I'm going to go and I'm going to follow the truth. Okay, take that as a good thing, but we can't ignore... The implications of passages like this, because this passage tells us that it's not a whole bunch of different congregations of one that honor God. Instead, these passages like this challenge us to this idea that Christian unity is something that really does matter to God, that God is really building us somehow into a house together to honor, that there's somehow a key to the gospel, that it reconciles people, and that God is honored in the fellowship. And new peace that people enjoy together. So it matters how we interact with other Christians in other towns, in other denominations, with other theologies, right? Right. Truth is important. And the truth is that unity is important. So they're not opposed to each other, truth and unity. One of the parts of truth is that unity is important. To God. So that's one thing. The second, though, that I really want to spend some time on is that I think passages like this demand that we take seriously the needs of our communities as our own needs. I like autonomy, I like liberty, I like freedom to do things and to make decisions as I see fit. I like Having the final call on what I'm doing and when. And of course, to some extent, that's unavoidable for all adults. We do have to make those choices. We do have to set boundaries in our lives and to say, this is my sphere. Yet at the same time, when I think about my family, my family responsibilities are certainly things that I allow to cut into my sense of personal autonomy. Uh, My son Gabriel, when he cries at 2.30 in the morning, I don't think to myself, I am setting boundaries here, Gabriel. I am exercising my right as an autonomous individual. I do not want to get out of bed. It is not best for me to get out of bed, and I will not be manipulated, right? That's not what I say to Gabe. No, I do what parents do. I get up, I push the pillow onto the floor, I grumble a little, I go over to the kid and say, what's wrong with you, why can't you sleep, you know? Then I get him up, and he comes over, and I feed him, I give him the sleepy mommy, mommy feeds him. We put him back in bed, and then he gets up again, right? That's what we do. Why? I get up because I realize that Gabe has a legitimate claim on my time. In the same way, right, I love to run. Those of you who know me know that I love to run, and I love to run long distances. But since Gabe has been born, it's been a busy, busy time for our family, and I, my running has had to take a back seat sometimes. Last night, I thought, I want to run 10 miles, and the day just kept going on and on and on. And finally, it was 8.45 at night, and I was like, here we go, 10 miles, you know? And I got back at whatever, 10.15, and I thought, this stinks. This is, I, it was such a beautiful day, and here I am running at 10.15 at night. But you know what? My family needed me there in the daytime. They have a legitimate claim on my time. So I have to let go of my own autonomy in order to contribute to their well-being. And in the end, of course, I'm not only serving them, but I'm serving something that's for us. When I make our family strong, that's not just helping them in the end. It even helps me to have a strong family. So I think this passage is suggesting in the same way, maybe, that the needs of our community, specifically our church community, are real, genuine needs, which to some extent have legitimate claims on our autonomy, on our time, on our effort, right? If we together are to build a house for God, then the ties that bind us together are important to keep us strong, even when it doesn't immediately uh, seem rewarding to us, even when it's not immediately rewarding for me to Personally, even when it's difficult to make the time and the effort, it is worth it sometimes to keep the relationship between us strong. I don't know how you feel about this, so take it with a grain of salt if you like. But as a pastor who occasionally did marriage counseling, I always admired couples who came to me and said, "We're staying together for the sake of our children." Now, this isn't to condemn folks who have made different decisions than this. I'm just saying I admired that that sense that people had about, I were staying together for the sake of the children. There was a sense in which their marriage was not rewarding to them right then, but they were able to say, there's something greater I'm serving, and so I'm willing to stay together with you. I honor that, even though I realize the world is a murky place with lots of different reasons. I don't want to get into all of it. Just to say I admire that sentiment. Perhaps what we need to say in this case is that our relationship with each other, believe it or not, Churches are not always rewarding for everyone who's part of them. Did you know that? I'm fully aware that probably 60 to 70% of you didn't get up this morning and say, Yes, church! Right? But there's a sense in which you're here to meet God in hopeful expectation, but also because the church needs to go on. Relationships need to be maintained and kept for the sake of the gospel. Why? Because... Our relationships are one of the ways that the world sees God in us. Perhaps we can say it best this way. We stick together for the sake of our Father. We stick together for the sake of our Father. There's a way that the world sees our Father through our togetherness. And so even when it's not rewarding right now, we stick together for his sake. And this is where I really feel like we need to do better. And I I struggle with how to put this. There's a, a nebulous feeling inside of me that I just couldn't fully get on paper when I was writing this sermon. Because on one hand, Houghton does this stuff better than any place I have ever been or seen. I love this place. And it is inscribed, it is burned on my memory, how nicely you treated me when we moved in. People brought us Cakes. People brought us pies. We happened to move in around this time of year, so people brought us fresh blueberries. People unpacked our moving truck with us. It was the end of the summer. I now know that's the end of moving season around Houghton. I'm sure there were people like, oh man, another guy to move in. But you did it. You invited us to church. You hugged us when we came. You were generally so hospitable. And here's the thing. That wasn't just a facade. Like, you've continued to be nice to me. Sometimes without reason, right? Right? That's, that's what it has been to me. It's, it's not just that you made that up and then stopped. When, when Lucy was born first and when Gabriel was born, you brought meals for us. You've, you helped us out when we moved again from one house to another house. We, we've enjoyed meals together. We've enjoyed discussions together. We've done life together. And, and it's been amazing. But, but there is somehow, and again, and I don't know quite how to put it, there is somehow a, a sense of, of deep dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction. With the community, with what maybe with Ho- what what Houghton has been, or or what we're worried that Houghton is becoming, there there are stories that we each have, and and maybe you only tell me these stories because I'm a pastor type. I don't know, but but there are stories that we each have of how the community has let us down, or how we're just certain the community is about to let us down, and, and it's almost it's almost like we cherish these stories. It's almost like we we rehearse these stories because we. We, we cherish the idea that we're a gift to Houghton rather than the other way around. Right deep, deep down there is this feeling of dissatisfaction with how we do life together. Somehow, some way in Houghton, there is a, a, a current, an undercurrent of loneliness right here. How could that be? I mean, how, how could that be in Houghton? I, I remember the first time that we had a, a mailman drop off a package at our house and we weren't there. Well, I was there. I was changing Gabriel or Jack's diaper upstairs and I heard the doorbell ring and I just couldn't go down. I heard the door open and the mailman left a package inside. That's the kind of stuff that never happened in suburban Philadelphia. Just mailmen let themselves in. What, how could there be an undercurrent of loneliness in a place like that? In a place that sometimes gets derided as a Christian Mayberry. How could there be, how could there be loneliness here? I don't know. I have an idea. Most of you know that I went to Houghton as a student. I graduated in 1999, about 11 weeks before I got married, I reckon. And when we made the decision to come back to Houghton, I was defensive. When I told people I was moving back to Houghton, they looked at me with this look. They kind of narrowed their eyes a little bit. And, uh, and I read those things. I read those eye narrowings. And it's like in those eye narrowings, I could see them saying, huh, going back to your old life, huh? Trying to recreate your college years, aren't you? Can't hack it in the big, bad, suburban world out here, so you're taking the easy way out. You're going back to your romanticized home, to your alma mater, aren't you? And I could just feel them thinking that. So, I would try to head it off by explaining, no, 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 this is a really good opportunity. It's a, we were moving to Houghton because it's a good opportunity for Jill's career. Maybe I would get a job there too. I don't know, but, but, but whatever the case, it, it was just a good opportunity for us, and it could have been any Christian college, really, but, but Houghton was the one with the opportunity, and so because Houghton was the school where the opportunity presented itself, yeah, we'll, we'll go back to Houghton. That's what I said. But do you know what I was thinking inside? What I wanted to say, but I felt like I couldn't say. What I wanted to say, but felt like I couldn't say, was that this, I had been to this community that once upon a time had called forth the very best in me. Something I didn't know I had in me. It called it out. And I wanted to go back there because I thought they could call it out of me again. And I thought they could call it out of my family, my children. I wanted to say that, but I was afraid to say it because I was afraid people would think I wasn't savvy. I was afraid they would think I was a simpleton. I was afraid they would think I didn't have the chops to make it in the real world. And so I went back to Houghton where I could pretend to be a college student forever. Mostly I was afraid to say it because deep inside, I was afraid I wouldn't be the hero of my own life that you all would be the hero of my life. And I think a lot of us carry around in inner life something like that. We are at once aware that we have so much to be thankful for because of this place, but at the same time we're aware that if I show too much dependence, if I don't hold it at arm's length just far enough, I'm going to look like a simpleton who couldn't hack it anywhere else. And so we're afraid to show our dependence on each other. But here's the thing. That's what this passage is about. Neither you nor I is big enough to build a house for God on our own. We're not big enough to do it as married couples. We're not big enough to do it as traditional families. We only do so together, building On Christ the cornerstone and the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And an undercurrent of loneliness in our community is something that keeps us from doing that. And so that loneliness, whether it's something the community deserves the blame for or not, whether it's real or perceived, whatever that loneliness is, it's something we need to fight together. Well, How do we fight loneliness? Well... We do so first by doing what I've been saying steadily along in the sermon and steadily along for my whole life if you ever listen to me, <laughs> right? We make time for each other. Right? When Gabe cries at 2.30 in the morning, he is entitled to my time just by virtue of his crying, just by virtue of the pain he's feeling, whether or not he has a reason for the pain he's feeling. He's entitled to my time. Just like that, your loneliness, your pain, is reason enough for me to see what's wrong. So we fight loneliness by eating meals together. We fight loneliness by praying together. We fight loneliness by holding each other accountable. We we fight loneliness by finding ways to talk that don't involve the internet, for heaven's sakes. We uh, we fight loneliness by inviting each other to use our God-given gifts to help the community, even when it's not convenient. We do them so we can do our shared job the best way we can. But the flip side is we also fight loneliness from within by doing our best to gratefully receive what the community has given us, even if it doesn't seem like a whole lot on a certain day. We fight loneliness when we Refuse to allow our insecurities and our anxieties to dictate how I interpret the way that you act towards me. We fight loneliness when we choose to give each other the benefit of the doubt in our interactions. We, we fight loneliness when we choose gratitude over cynicism. We fight loneliness when we choose clear, loving communication when it would feel much better to shake the dust off my sandals. Thank you very much. Enough. I started the sermon by talking about Jill, so I'll end it by talking about Jill too. When we got married, I was in terrible shape. Those that knew me in 1999 would know that was true. But on our honeymoon, we decided to take a hike up Mount Lincoln in New Hampshire. It had been a place where I had been as a kid, and I told Jill it was a really fun hike. And so I said, "Let's go do it." And so it was awesome. It was a great day. But we were taking it as a day hike. We're not really campers, and so we we didn't have any overnight gear, but it was a longer hike than we had anticipated, and we were coming down the mountain, and those of you who do a little hiking up mountains know that often going down is harder than going up in some ways. If you have good cardiovascular, if you're kind of in good condition, you can hike up, but hiking down is hard on the muscles if you're not used to it, and so we're hiking down this rocky mountain, and as we were going down, my quadriceps muscles, these muscles right here, kept cramping up. They were cramping up something terrible. We'd go down these, and I'd have to stop and wait. And as we were stopping and waiting, we'd think, I can't stop and wait anymore. It's getting dark, <laughs> you know. So we keep going, we keep going. I'd keep fighting through these cramps. We ended up, it was a happy ending. We got to the car before dark, don't worry. But, but I was intensely sore for the next... Two weeks, probably. But certainly for the next few days, right? On our honeymoon, Jill looked like a normal, honeymooning 22-year-old. Whereas I looked like I was about 111. I was walking around like this, and I I would have to take forever get up and downstairs. I looked horrible. And Jill, teasingly, gently, as Jill can do, started calling me decrepit husband, was her nickname that she gave me. During that time, she was so gentle with me. And in my mind's eye, I I still today, right, then and now, I, I still get a glimpse of what marriage would be like if I were sick and she needed to take care of me. Many of you who have been married know that side of the coin from one side or the other, being sick and being cared for. And I had a sense then that this person, even more so than on the perfect day we had gotten married, on the day when I was sore, I had a sense that she could take care of me. It's then that I, I felt a certain security that I had married a good one. I, I, knew, I knew that day that I could cast my whole lot in with her. Of course, I had just done that a week before, so I'm glad I had that sense, right? But I knew it deep in my bones on that day. I knew that I had married someone who, who by her love, could call me to be somebody that I never was before and never could have been on my own. This is the good news. That's not just for husbands and wives. My relationship with Jill is admittedly different than my relationship with the rest of you. I'm not married to anybody else in this room. But my relationship with Jill is different from you, my relationship with you, more in intensity than it is in kind. Just like Jill and I, we have the potential to call forth the best in each other. And indeed, we have the privilege, the obligation, and the high calling to do so, because we have this calling of doing something none of us can do on our own, none of us could even imagine doing it on our own. Showing God to the world. That's lofty. And it demands prayer. So let's close in prayer now that we become that sort of people. God, we thank you for calling, as your word says, calling and setting the lonely in families. But we know, God, that it's not simply earthly families that refers to. It's talking about this that we experience here today, albeit imperfectly, but the family of God, that you have called us out of ourselves into a community that can call forth the best in us. For those of us who are married and whose marriages push us to that kind of joy, we give you thanks. We pray, God, that you would make us very sensitive to those in our midst who, whose marriages are not what all, all that they could be or who are not married at all. We pray that this would be a place where those folks, too, find their place in this great high calling we have together. Make us this sort of people who, by our love and by our reconciliation, show something forth of a triune God to the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.